Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A treatment treat, optimism surges over a COVID-19 fighting drug. The owner urges caution. China's crunch, the economy shrinks for the first time in more than 40 years. And Amazon acts. Jeff Bezos says the firm is building its own testing system. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. We have a jam-packed show for you this Friday, and it's all about the three T's. The first one, treatment. There's global hope of a potential treatment for COVID-19 from Gilead. But are we getting ahead of ourselves? All the details on what we're seeing from that coming up. And then there's two and three, and that's testing and tracing, as we often talk about on this show. President Trump has given his guidelines for opening up the U.S. economy, but the crucial part, those two T's, seem to be missing. Right now, we're looking at gains of more than 2% for U.S. stocks, 3%, as you can see in some cases, following a late-session surge on Thursday that allowed and flattened earlier losses, helped along by tech and the healthcare sector. In fact, Gilead shares are set to rise around 11%, as you can see, at the open. We will be discussing that shortly. Europe, meanwhile, is higher. Asia rose too, and I have to say... As you can see there, global optimism, it is a sign of the times that China posting its first ever quarterly declining growth is not mentioned until this moment. The truth is, the road to a new normal for all of us and for global economies could be a bumpy one. Trust in leaders here is crucial too. In fact, we're going to call trust our fourth T this Friday, trust in leadership. Let's get to the drivers. Pharma stock Gilead rallying pre-market. This on a report that one of its drugs, it's called Remdesivir, was shown promising results in a COVID-19 trial. Elizabeth Cohen joins me now, our senior medical correspondent. It's great to have you on this story. And it was a story suggesting that a doctor had been talking about the success in one of their trials. But my understanding is they did do well, the patients. They were very sick originally, but we're only talking what? around 125 people. How optimistic should we be at this stage, Elizabeth? Julia, I wouldn't be optimistic at all. I think we should maintain an an even outlook. Could this drug be useful? Absolutely. Could Could it turn out to be useless? Absolutely. Let me tell you what happened, and then let me talk to you a bit about what happened during the Ebola times, because I think it's a good comparison. What happened was that there was a video conference, as many of us are doing these days, about this drug. University of Chicago doctors were involved, and it was taped, and somebody leaked that tape to STAT, which is a health news website. And in that tape, we're told, now STAT didn't post the tape, but they wrote about it, and they said that all sorts of positive things were said, that the patients were recovering more quickly, that few of them were dying and that there was a general sort of positive and rosy outlook expressed by this doctor. But what this is really is 
office chatter. And we all work in offices, and we all know that in offices you get chatter that turns out to be true, and you get chatter that turns out to be nothing. So the fact that these doctors said this does not mean much. And the reason why is that sometimes patients with COVID do well. As a matter of fact, most of them do well. Thank goodness most mm. of them recover and are discharged from the hospital. Most of them do not die. So the fact that she's saying, hey, they recovered quickly, well, maybe maybe all of her patients are recovering quickly. You need to have what's called a control group. If you don't have a control group, all you're doing is making an observation that people did well. Maybe people did well not on the drug. It's sort of, I, I'll give you this comparison, Julia. If you had a cold and I gave you a chocolate chip cookie and you recovered a few days later, I could say, aha, it was the chocolate chip cookie. That's not true, of course. What we need to see is we need to see this in writing and we need to see this with a control group. And when I mentioned Ebola early, earlier, here's, here's what I was thinking about. During Ebola, about five years ago, there was so much excitement. People were jumping up and down about various treatments that turned out not to work. There was so much excitement. I can remember this as if it were yesterday. And then they turned out not to work. We need to keep that in mind during this time as well. Yes, what's your benchmark for comparison? That's the key here. And even the firm themselves are saying, look, right. be cautious at this moment. Though I have to say to your uh, comparison, a cookie would always make me feel better, I have to say. <laughs> great to have <laughs> Good you Good to know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Thanks. you for joining us all this week. It's great to have your insight. Okay, yes. So we'll pair our enthusiasm. For the first time in more than 40 years, China's vast economy has shrunk. The world number two nation reported a near 7% drop in GDP for the first quarter. David Culver is live in Shanghai with the details. David, I have to say, when I see their growth numbers normally, um, there's a healthy dose of um, skepticism, shall we call it. When I saw these numbers, I felt the same because given what we saw, I would have expected this number to be worse. Talk us through the details. A lot of skepticism with China and numbers these days, Julia. You're right on with that. So the, the shrinking here of the economy is 6.8%. And it's obviously been expected given the damage that we have seen economically and to a lot of the businesses here with the closure and what has been a brutal lockdown in most cases. Now, we have started to see the economy reopen in, in some parts here. And certainly that is the image that state media wants to portray. And to that point, I want to share a little bit of video that we were invited on uh, a tour of local businesses, small businesses here in Shanghai that were showing that they're back on track. And that's something that state media has tried to push out over and over is this idea that China is coming back, that they're springing back to life. The reality is, while they are in some places, there's still a lot of restrictions at other places. Even within Wuhan, the original epicenter of all of this, many folks are still with inside their homes many hours a day and still restricted to leave, depending on how large crowds can get in certain public areas, including workplaces. So the reality that, that this is all coming back online is far from true. So it's expected to drag on for a good while longer. Uh, yet at the same time, China is ahead of the rest of the world when it comes to coming back online. And what they do point out is that even though factories here may be starting up again and getting near full production, if they're exporting things to hmm. clients around the world and those clients are in a place of lockdown and not buying, they're simply not going to have a customer base to sell to. It's such a great point. There's no real counterbalance because so much of the world is is going through this, even if they're going through at different stages. Um, I'll circle back to right. where we began as well about the nervousness about the data again. 
a change, an adjustment in numbers from Wuhan specifically? David, tell us more. Julia, we've been pushing this concern yes. from the very beginning of our coverage of this, going back to January, and you know that. We have, we have questioned repeatedly the numbers of confirmed cases and the death toll, and, and ours is based on anecdotal evidence and speaking to many people within Wuhan originally who told us that their loved ones were not getting tested, and if they were tested, those tests were delayed heavily, and in some cases, their loved ones would pass away, and the doctor in one instance, pulled the family aside and said, look, it was severe pneumonia. We know it was that pneumonia, but it's not official. And so they don't go towards that death count. What we now have seen is a revision, an increase within the city of Wuhan in particular of about 50 percent. That's a significant jump in numbers, though, Julia, it still falls short of, of what many people believe might be the actual reality in how many lives were lost due to this virus here. Yeah, even just anecdotally comparing the death count to other nations and population size, it's, it has been a bit mystifying right. and you have been all over this. So, David, thank you so much for keeping us updated Thanks, on Julia. this story. Thank you. Now, of course, everything we're discussing there, a sign of things to come for the United States. The U.S. president unveiling guidelines for a staggered reopening of the economy. In a seeming retreat from claims earlier in the week, he told state governors that they can make the final call on how and when to reopen. This comes as a new poll from Pew Research suggests 73% of Americans say we haven't seen the worst in the crisis and most fear state and local governments stay at home restrictions will be lifted too quickly. John Harwood joins us now. John, it's been great to speak to you throughout this week. I do feel like we've gone on a bit of a wild goose chase. The states began in control. We detoured briefly. We're back in control as far as state leadership is concerned. But what I didn't hear in those guidelines was a plan, a national plan for testing and tracing. Well, first of all, Julia, there's a relation between the first and second parts of your intro. The president's retreat uh, from saying he's going to compel states to do uh, what he wants them to do and that polling information because until consumers are ready to come back to work, until business owners are ready uh, to reopen their businesses and uh, people like Jamie Dimon in New York State said we're not ready till at least June. It's simply not practical and the president bowed to that reality. Uh, the uh, guidelines the president released last night were constructive in the sense that they uh, were science-based. They uh, described uh, entering a gate for phase one if you've had 14 days of declining cases, if you have hospital capacity, if you have testing and contact tracing capacity. But it did not indicate uh, a plan to uh, give states those capacities or help them reach those capacities. So uh, states have a lot of responsibility. Deborah Burks, the coordinator of the uh, Coronavirus Task Force, says we're going to be working hand in glove with states. We'll see what kind of assistance they actually provide. Um, the uh, uh, Congress is talking about perhaps $30 billion of additional aid for testing for states. That would help them reach that goal. So uh, they're uh, bending in the right direction. It's not clear exactly how and when they will get there, Julia. I mean, trillions of dollars are being lost as a result of the economic decline right. in this country. The idea that you can't put $100, 200000000000 billion into a broader testing plan to coordinate this is mystifying to me. But, John, I completely agree with you on the point that the states have control here, but the states are also liaising with the companies and the businesses to understand when they think their workers are going to be comfortable enough to come back to work. So everything here is tied and it comes down to confidence. 
Exactly right. And uh, one of the things that's going to be an interesting challenge for business is trying to make their workplaces uh, a little more uh, COVID friendly. That is to say, um, uh, more spacing for employees and uh, how they can, um, uh, you know, in the, in the initial phases of this plan, they're describing an encouragement of continued telework, which a lot of people are doing now. But as they start having people come back into the workplace, uh, businesses have got to account for how you keep people apart and not on top of each other, how you limit gatherings and meetings in the workplace. Uh, and businesses, which are, have both uh, liability concerns and also have concerns about uh, uh, simply uh, once you restart, staying restarted, uh, it's going to be uh, up to them to make some of those things real. And uh, I think you can expect them to have a very strong focus uh, on those issues because it goes straight to the bottom line. Yeah, it absolutely does. John Howard, great to have you with us. And we're going to be speaking to one of the companies at the forefront of this, Amazon's Jay Carney, coming up later on in the show, which is going to be pivotal, I think, too. John, thank you. All right, to France now, where French President Emmanuel Macron says richer members of the EU must help the poorer nations hit by the coronavirus. In a candid interview with the Financial Times newspaper, the French leader warns that if the EU doesn't act now, there will be a higher price to pay. Take a listen. If we cannot do this today, I'm telling you, populists will win. Today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. In Italy, Spain, perhaps in France and maybe somewhere else. For more on this, we're joined by Melissa Bell, who's in Bordeaux for us. Melissa, great to have you with us. I feel like he's the last remaining bastion of more Europe in any form. But I think what he was pointing to there was perhaps coordinated borrowing, euro bonds, COVID bonds, and everyone else seems reluctant. Well, he also suggested in that interview, and I think this is important, Julia, that it seemed that those most reluctant members of the European Union, and I'm speaking here about Germany and the Netherlands, were coming round to the idea of that fund in the name of solidarity. This was what he told the Financial Times. It was important that Europe put aside its old dogmas, the very things, Julia, when you think back uh, about 10 years ago to the European debt crisis that had prevented it from acting as it should have, as it might have to prevent the crisis from taking place. Those same uh, things are happening once again. We've seen this week the sell-off uh, of Italian, Greek, Spanish, Portuguese government bonds, those yields widening between Germany German bonds and Italian ones, for instance. It is, he said, the very future, not just of the Eurozone, but of the European idea that is at stake. His plan to create a 400 billion euro fund uh, that would essentially mean the mutualization uh, of uh, the debt. And he said it was important that we put aside this idea of sinner must pay that had prevented those uh, northern economies from accepting the idea that their taxpayers should be helping out the borrowing of other countries. These times are different, is what he explained. And it was a fairly stark warning about the idea that if Europe failed on this front, if it failed to show the sufficient solidarity to create such a fund in these times of coronavirus, in these extraordinary times where he pointed out all the dogmas are being put out the window by all the countries within Europe, since governments are having essentially to uh, nationalize the wages and the financial accounts of their businesses in order to keep them afloat. If Europe failed at this particular point, he said, it would be the death 
of an entire idea, drawing, drawing a stark mm. warning from uh, history, really, saying, look, when France had insisted on Germany paying at the end of World War I, what did it lead to? The rise of populism and World War II. There are times in history, essentially, he was saying, uh, when the old dogmas have to be put out the window and Europe, in this case, needs to reinvent itself and show the solidarity that this particular crisis requires. Julia. Yes. Learn to bend before you break, I think the message here, and uh, there are no sinners in this fight against uh, the virus. Melissa, great to have you with us. Melissa Bell, there. Right, we'll take a break here on First Move, but coming up, as I mentioned, Amazon begins working on its own version of coronavirus testing. We're going to be joined by the company's senior vice president, Jay Carney, to get the lowdown. And also ahead, Verizon gets its own blue jeans. I speak to the CEO as the company scoops up the video conferencing company. Stay with us. We're off back after this. Welcome back to First Move, where we see U.S. stocks this morning set to rally on hopes that some U.S. states can restart their economy soon, as well as, as we were discussing earlier on the show, reports that a COVID-19 treatment from Gilead Sciences may be showing some promise. Elizabeth Cohen saying, hold your horses on that. And I'll reiterate that message. The Nasdaq coming into today's session down less than 5% this year. What a performance when you think about what we've been through and we'll still see in the data, of course. Thank you, Jay Powell, perhaps, and the trillions of dollars of stimulus from them. Netflix up 35% year-to-date. Amazon up 30%, both hitting record highs this week. It comes as Amazon announced it's developing its own testing for the coronavirus. CEO Jeff Bezos announcing in his letter to shareholders that the company will begin testing small groups of employees soon. I'm delighted to say Jay Carney, Senior Vice President for Amazon, former Press Secretary for President Barack Obama, joins us now. Jay, always fantastic to have you on the show. Now, Amazon is many things to many people, but the last time I checked, you didn't have a scientific testing development unit at the company Talk me through why you're doing this, how you're doing this, and time horizons potentially too. Well, thank you, Julia, for having me. And you're absolutely right. Amazon uh, has no experience in uh, assembling labs for uh, coronavirus virus testing, but uh, these are extraordinary times. And I think uh, Amazon, like a lot of companies and uh, private, other private as well as public sector institutions are having to do things they've never done before. Uh, we think, uh, and I know that we're not alone in thinking this, that uh, the need for plentiful, uh, scalable uh, testing around the country and the world is a uh, key to our ability to return to normal, so to speak, especially before there's a vaccine available. Uh, and because there has been uh, a shortage of testing, we are assembling our own first lab. I mean, it's, uh, it's early days. Uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to start testing some of our frontline uh, employees soon. Uh, but uh, how far we get in this process, how much scaling uh, we're able to do remains to be seen. We're very humble about this, not our area of expertise, but uh, we really need, uh, and everyone needs to, I think, focus on this challenge. But you're sending a message here, perhaps, to the leaders of this nation that in the absence of mass testing on a broader scale, companies will go it alone because in the end you have to protect and give confidence to your workforce. Is that the message? 
Well, we're not alone. I think many uh, business leaders uh, and leaders from uh, the health industry and across industries have uh, noted that uh, the uh, easiest way, the best way, perhaps the only way for us to get uh, the economies uh, of the world going again uh, is to uh, have a system where testing is readily available so that those who are diagnosed positive can uh, be taken care of and isolated from the population of uh, workers uh, and others who can, uh, if they uh, test negative, can, can go back to work and do so without fear. I think, uh, you know, this is not a, a novel idea that, that, that we have. Uh, we are because we have the capacity to at least try it. We are trying to build some of our own uh, coronavirus testing uh, capacity, but obviously none of this works at the scale that uh, the United States or Europe or the rest of the world needs unless uh, it's uh, done by many, many institutions, uh, governments, uh, yes. and uh, private and public sector. Yes, centralized leadership, one might argue, is required here. Um, you are hiring an additional 75,000 workers to help cater to the demand that you've seen, particularly as a result of, of what we're experiencing and going through here. You've already hired 100,000 before that. You've also faced some criticism from sporadic workers saying, look, we don't feel safe. Is this testing going to be used on those frontline workers first, assuming you can do it, those that are handling the demand and in these warehouses? Uh, the answer to that is absolutely yes. Now, the right. scale... Uh, remains to be seen, but once we are able to begin our own testing, we'll, we'll uh, have our frontline workers tested first. Uh, we have quite a few, as you know. We have more than 850,000 employees yes. globally, and, and hundreds and thousands of them are frontline workers in our fulfillment centers and our distribution centers. Uh, so again, getting to that scale is, is a challenge for everyone. Uh, but we are very concerned about the safety of our workers. We've taken extraordinary steps uh, in all of our sites to uh, enhance safety precautions, ensure social distancing. We supply masks and gloves mm. uh, and other uh, protective equipment uh, to all of our employees around the world. Uh, and Ex we're, uh, you know, we're going to continue taking steps to ensure their safety. Explain to me what's happening in France, because you've been ordered by the courts to shut some warehouses there. What's your reaction to that? And are your employees there less safe than anywhere else in the world? We were disappointed by the court ruling. Mm. Uh, we don't believe the court took into account the, the many measures that we've uh, put into place to ensure the safety of our workers in France as well as uh, around Europe and the world. Uh, we uh, are appealing that decision. Uh, we have had to shut down our fulfillment centers in France uh, because of the lack of clarity in the ruling that uh, would uh, result in potential massive fines for uh, incidental or accidental or inadvertent uh, 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 violations of the ruling in you know when a non-essential item would would uh, be shipped from a fulfillment center so the, the it's really a shame uh, uh, there are you know our French customers are still able to get uh, uh, deliveries from Amazon uh, sites, but it, it, it reduces selection for them, reduces time of delivery, I mean, uh, increases time of delivery, which is a problem for folks who are sheltering at home. Uh, and it also is, it's not good for our French workers who, employees who were, uh, those who, who were able to work and were healthy were coming in. And, and I think 
uh, many felt uh, and feel that they were doing something important for their own citizens and their own, you know, their own fellow citizens. So uh, we'll see where that goes. It's obviously a judicial decision, not a governmental. Uh, we've actually had some, uh, we think, uh, positive support from the French government in general uh, for our role uh, in this situation. So uh, we'll monitor that and, and uh, proceed with the judiciary. Will you still pay those employees very quickly, Jay, or is it now down to the government to protect those that were working and aren't? Well, we are paying those employees. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we don't know how long this will last. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, we will follow all the laws, of course, uh, in France. And uh, we want to keep uh, our, our goal is to allow our employees in France to go back to work. Jay? As always, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for uh, being so candid with us. It's uh, great to have you. Thank you, Julia. Stay safe. All right, the market open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. This Friday, U.S. stocks are up and running, as you heard. They're clapping for some of our healthcare heroes there while ringing the bell, so multitasking as expected. We've got strong gains for stocks across the board. Blue chips among the biggest winners, including Boeing, in fact, so that clearly helping lift markets too, given its sheer weight. It will restart commercial aircraft production in Washington state next week, a move that will get some 27,000 people back to work. That's an interesting one. Right now we're seeing that relatively unchanged. Procter & Gamble, also out with quarterly results. It saw a 10% U.S. sales gain in the first quarter as consumers stocked up on essentials. Interesting, though, that sales in China, however, fell some 8%. A mixed day also on the oil markets. U.S. crude tumbling more than 10% at this moment to well under $19 a barrel. That due to contract contract expirations and, of course, continued oversupply. Brent managing to hold unchanged at this moment. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, a lot of the enthusiasm that we're seeing in the session today, coming back to what we were discussing earlier on in the show with Elizabeth Cohen, this optimism over a drug potentially to help with some of the symptoms of COVID-19. She was very cautious, investors less so. Yeah, I think Julia, it's extraordinary uh, on a day when, for, for example, U.S. oil is down some 10 percent, an yeah. event that in normal times would really royal these financial markets, that they are placing so much hope in this. But this is a market, don't forget, that is up some 25 percent since its March 23rd low, that the prevailing sentiment out there is one of hope for recovery. And science is really a big part of that. So investors are looking at this potential drug from Gilead. By the way, not even the results of a clinical trial. This is a conversation, a video of a conversation that, that was published by Stat News, a health news website that shows some promising signs uh, that they are seeing in patients that are treated with remdesivir, which is this, this Gilead drug, but so far not the full results of the clinical trial. This trial itself doesn't have a control group. So, so there is a lot of caution out there and including from the company itself, Gilead saying that anecdotal reports while encouraging do not provide the statistical power necessary to determine the safety and efficacy profile of remdesivir as a treatment for COVID-19. But they do expect the full results will be out uh, by the end of this month, Julia, so it won't be long before we know. We'll have to watch and wait for that. It was just 125 people, I believe, as well. So, again, mm. just we have to be careful about sample size, as uh, any, I think, yeah. statistician will tell us, too. Never mind the control group, to your very valid point here. Claire, what about Moderna, another one that's being talked about? Funding for a vaccine, potentially? 
Yeah, so this is a, a, a sort of mid-sized biotech company, and they have been given a grant today by BARDA, which is the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, part of the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. The grant is large. It's $483 million, and it's designed to accelerate their path towards a vaccine. They have already supplied a vaccine that is, being, that is undergoing a phase one clinical trial uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health here in the United States. But this grant they say will we'll, we'll accelerate their production and will we'll accelerate the trial itself. So this is sort of another part of the, uh, the, the science that the markets are really looking at. You have treatment and then you have prevention. And, and the, the path towards a vaccine uh, is crucially important if, if the economy is going to open up. And that is something, of course, that is crucial to these financial markets. Yes, it's all a bridge to a vaccine at some point, potentially. Thank you, Claire Sebastian. Great job at analysing uh, the findings there, mixing the science and the finance as well. I just want to quickly show you Boeing, because I mentioned earlier that it looked relatively unchanged. Aha! That sounds more like it. Right now, up some 10%, as you can see. So uh, now we've got that open and I can give you a true reflection of what we are seeing. All right, let's move on, because just because many of us are working from home doesn't mean deals aren't getting done. Verizon announcing it's buying Zoom rival BlueJeans and joining us now to explain why, Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg. Hans, great to have you on the show and looking so well. Talk to me about this decision. Was it based on valuation and or the fact that we're communicating in an incredibly different way and BlueJean cuts to the heart of that? Uh, first of all, we have been in conversation with Blue Jeans uh, uh, since May last year. We yes. actually introduced them and distributed their service in Q4. Then one thing led to another, and uh, we continued to discuss that as an acquisition, and we concluded that right now. So we already saw long before this COVID-19 broke out that uh, our customers on their digital journey really need an enterprise-grade video conferencing, and Blue Jeans is a, is a great product. So that was the main reason. And of course, with the COVID-19 and uh, everyone working from home and working video conferencing is, of course, accentuated right now. And also, I need to add that it's also part of our 5G journey, because in 5G, especially 5G mobile edge compute, where you have processing at the edge of the network with high speeds and throughput, Video conferencing and video in general will be, will be extremely important. So it both plays in today's environment where we need to deliver this service to our customers, but also in the future, strapped it all over us. And this is such a great point as well. And, and to your point, I know you've been also promoting BlueJean with your clients for, for a, a while now, as you said. We keep talking about Zoom and Cisco WebEx simply because we're, we're using it more. But I know BlueJean's got over 15,000 clients as well already established. But we do have connection issues with some of these guys. Is that the point that you're making too? You, you can have a product like BlueJean, but if you match it with great 5G, then the speed, the coverage, the quality that you're getting is dramatically enhanced. Yeah, especially the latency and, and, uh, and the application can be closer to the user of it. So yes, that's what I see in 5G. Uh, but already right now, as you know, I mean, we have had an increase on uh, VPN services, which is basically working from home with video with over 50% since the, uh, the COVID-19 broke out. And, and still the network holds up very well. And, and there, 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 of course, has been some of their other applications have had some challenges. But again, it's a combination of having a great network and then, of course, a robust uh, application for video conferencing. Do you think this also says something about the future 
of how we work. I mean, we're all wondering what the new normal looks like here. Do you think in the future we will be present together in offices and in work environments less where we can going forward? I'm certain that uh, when all this is over, we will have a new normal. We will work differently. Barriers that we've had before for telehealth or uh, sort of education, digital education or working from home will be much more normal and the barrier has broken down. And I think that we will probably never go back to where we're pre-COVID-19. And we're going to find technology actually to enhance our lives, uh, making things more efficient. So I think that clearly we're going to see a totally different way of acting when all this is over uh, that we see already right now. As a CEO, do you think you will travel less personally? Forget COVID-19. Do you think you as a leader of a big business will travel less in the future? Yes, I think so. Uh, I have had, I'm not sure how many CEO meetings with my biggest clients or big uh, discussions with the customers and and, uh, it's working very well Uh, and uh, all of us are working from home etc so yes clearly we're going to find this as as uh, having a new way to communicate i think still that meeting people will be important the social interaction is something lovely uh, but it will be in a new way in the future talk to me about your plans your thinking for verizon because i know you are on the call with the president this week talking about what's required and testing seemed to be the answer from everyone on the call from from what I've heard. What was your message and how does that translate to getting your people back to work in in what kind of time horizon? So so first of all, we need to say that Verizon is, we're still open for for business because I mean, I have 115,000 people working from home, but I have 20,000 people uh, in the front line, uh, keeping up the networks, keeping some 30% of our stores open for critical infrastructure. Because so we 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 have never really closed. We 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 need to be open because we're so important for our society right now. Uh, but the conversation uh, was very much about that. All of us really want to bring the economy back as soon as possible, but not on the expense of, of, of the of the safety and health of the citizens. And then, of course, testing becomes an important piece for that. And over time, of course, vaccine as well. So uh, that was a discussion, but it was much sharing among the CEOs what we're doing and how we can help because they, it's not one party that can make this solution. It's actually everyone in our society has to do with private, public citizens need to help and act in order to, to bring this situation back to normal or the new normal, as we call it. Yeah, we, I mean, we all have to play our part, but it is fascinating that even with you and your point about the infrastructure and the network requirements that you have, just doing the math there, 83% of your workforce working in some way out of the office or from home is is pretty astonishing and what was achieved in such a, a small space of time. Just to go back over the point that you made there, would you like to see centralised money, leadership from the White House, from the government, putting into place mass testing? Or do you think you'll do it as a a company in the same way that Amazon's announced they're going to try? What's the balance here to to your point? First of all, I think that we will have big, big responsibilities. I mean, I'm running Verizon. I need to see that all my stakeholders are doing the right decision and doing the right decision for them every day yeah. uh, the, the same goal for the for the government what they need to do i mean so i think that we will need to stick and, and actually execute on what we think are the right things so I, I don't have any major 
any specific advice what they should do or not do. They are doing their job to see that their uh, constituencies are, are hold uh, accountable and doing the right things. I, I think, again, if the uh, collaboration, there's not one unit having uh, the right of everything. So the uh, discussions and, uh, and things like that have to lead up to what is the best solution for this. But clearly, the urgency of testing uh, uh, in order to get this back to normal is, of course, uh, very imminent. Yes, we all have to play our part. Hans Vestberg, thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking through your plans and, of course, on the deal too. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, up next, execs give up their pay as UBS joins the fight against the coronavirus. It's time to act. That's next. As coronavirus cases worldwide now top two million, big names in business and finance are doing their bit to help out. The philanthropy foundation of Swiss bank UBS has set up a COVID-19 fund. Partners include Doctors Without Borders, Americares and the Swiss Red Cross, among others. And the company's matching employee donations one-to-one. Phyllis Constanza, head of UBS Philanthropy, joins us now. Phyllis, when I looked at the list of the things that you were doing, and great to have you with us, I was, I was pretty astonished, actually. So let's focus in on what you're encouraging your employees and your clients to do to give back in their communities. Great. Well, thanks for having me. And we're really looking at three things. First of all, we're looking to make sure our employees are safe and healthy, of course, and we're encouraging them to work in local communities to address the most vulnerable, the most vulnerable in the communities in which we're working. But we're also encouraging them to look beyond our borders globally and focus on some of the places with the weakest healthcare systems because we know, you know, we saw this in Ebola, we're seeing it now, we are only as strong as our weakest healthcare systems. So for example, in our local communities, we're supporting programs like Feeding America or the Swiss Red Cross, and they're working with some of the most vulnerable populations in those specific locations. And UBS has put up tens of millions, and our group executive board has also committed 50% of their salary over the next six months towards these efforts. And we're looking, we're also trying to encourage our clients to donate as well. Our clients and our employees are our greatest assets. And so UBS has committed to match 100% of our client donations and our employee donations to some of these causes. Um, one, one example is uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. I don't know if you, I, we've all been looking at Imperial College data right? And some of the analysis that they've done on the African continent shows that if we do nothing, we could have 1 billion cases of coronavirus, two and a half million deaths. And so it's critical for us to address the needs there, which we're doing through a number of our partners. This is so important. I mean, there's so much in that, to be honest. I love the fact that, as you said, your executives have said, look, we're giving up half our salaries this year because we want to to put money towards this and to help. Can you give us a sense of how much money collectively you've managed to raise? And obviously the causes that you mentioned are absolutely critical, but can you give us a sense of the numbers here too? Sure. Uh, So over, we've just launched this initiative with our employees and clients. And so far we've raised more than 7 million. Uh, And if it hasn't come in the door yet, it's been committed. 
And some of the programs that our clients are supporting, for instance, Rihanna, she has um, a foundation called the Clara Lionel Foundation. And we matched her donation to Medicine Sans Frontieres. And we're also working with an organization because it's important to work with some of these big organizations providing immediate relief. But what we also want to do is prepare for the long term because in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's critical that we start to help them build the health systems that they're going to need to sustain their healthy communities. So for instance, Last Mile Health is an organization that's working in some of the most remote places in Liberia. And if we look at Liberia, it's a country of four and a half million people, yet they only have three ventilators in the entire country. Yeah. And so yeah. we're so we need to help them build their healthcare systems. And we're doing this by working with community healthcare workers. We're training or last mile health is training and equipping them in order to bring healthcare to some of the most remote places. And these are people who, who certainly don't have a medical education and many don't even have a high school education, but they can be trained to treat and diagnose. I'm so glad you came on because you've highlighted some pivotal issues actually around the world that we've discussed, but not the response to them, particularly from private companies that we tend to talk about from a commercial point of view. But there's other things going on at these companies like your own and you're giving back. Phyllis, great to have you with us. Stay in touch, please. And stay safe. Phyllis Constanza, head of UBS Philanthropy. Thank you. All right. Wow. Coming up on First Move, creativity in times of crisis, as we salute, as always, our frontline heroes. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. How about this as a tribute to workers in the healthcare sector and beyond all around the world and a reminder of those that we love and care for around the world too. out for the stars. So I like stargazing, so does our next guest clearly. Joining us now, Rick Haslam is Executive Director, Creative Partner at brand consultancy firm Brand Pie. Rick, fantastic to have you with us. Beautiful video. Talk to me about why you created this video. And I know it's personal because you were ill with COVID-19 at the time. So it's good to see you looking so well. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, Julia. Uh, yeah, um, I was fortunate. My illness was fairly mild, but I was bedridden, quarantined from my family and feeling pretty useless. I'm normally good in a crisis. And, you know, it, I just had a sense that really I wanted to be out there at the front lines, but I, I can't do that. I don't have the medical skills. Um, so I was feeling pretty miserable in my bedroom when I saw that the UN and the HWO had put out a brief to the creative community asking creatives to make content Um, show support and try to spread some positivity. So I thought, well, that's something I can do. Even though I'm sick, it's a small thing, but I can do something. So I tried to have an idea and um, lights out from the stairs was the result. And what feedback have you had from it? Because when I saw this, it it literally captured me. I I think it's pretty beautiful. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Yeah, um, really great um, feedback. Um, I 
you know you never know whether something's going to resonate with people or not so it's gone down really well and i think that um you know everybody wants to show support for all those essential workers that you know been so heroic um but i also wanted like to encourage people to take quiet moments of reflection and when we do stir up at the stars in the sky you know we do stop thinking so much about ourselves and think about the kind of bigger picture and um, we don't often think about these people they are like the stars we don't normally see the stars the you know the light in our city stops us seeing them and it's the same with these workers we don't see them most of the time but right now i think we're really realizing what these people do every, every day and have been doing for years and years and are doing right now so yeah that was the thinking they are the unsung heroes i think and for sure yeah one of the upsides of this terrible situation is they're under terrible pressure but they're also getting recognition and you helped you helped achieve that rick are you fully 100 percent now you're all better 100 all better now thank you okay great it's great to have you with us thank you so much for sharing that and uh shedding some light on the people that are our heroes of the day rick thank stay you, safe Julie. please rick haslam thank you, you so too. much for that all right, that just about wraps up the show for this week. Thank you so much for being with us. And I will say it again, as I always do. Stay safe, please. Take care of each other, and we'll see you on Monday. Thank you for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.